This is Monday Morning QB, November 16th, 2020. I'm Askia Muhammad. Today on the show, Beyond the Beltway into State Legislatures. Beyond the Beltway into the new administration's Middle East thrust. Did pre-election polling almost lull us to sleep concerning the real outcome? Did we snooze when it came to the importance of the Native American vote? As the makeup of elected members of Congress becomes more diverse, are the numbers of their supporting staffs following suit? And a setback to the gig economy in California. All that and more, stay with us. Beltway intrigue is at an all-time high as parties and pundits do battle over Donald Trump's false claims of voter fraud and a stolen election. But some of the most important political contests happened far from the corridors and cameras of Washington. Dozens of state legislatures from Michigan to North Carolina and Texas remain in Republican control after the Democratic effort to flip them. This down-ballot success doesn't just mean the continuation of conservative social and economic policy. It means the opportunity to draw new legislative maps that could keep the GOP in power for decades to come. Reporter Chris Banker-Drowns has that story. Democrats invested heavily in statewide races this year, hoping for a blue wave that could help them redraw Republican gerrymandered maps. The importance of these maps cannot be understated. The GOP has exercised minority rule on federal and state levels several times over the last decade, largely because of favorably drawn maps. Alex Tosanovich, director of campaign finance and electoral reform at the Center for American Progress, explains why Democrats fell short in retaking state legislatures and controlling the redistricting process. I think that part of the reason is that Republicans have also been making an investment in state legislatures, and they have been making those investments for a lot longer. So in the 2010 cycle, which was the last cycle before we had redistricting, the Republicans had a program called RedMap. And the target of that program was to win as many state legislatures as possible so that Republicans would be able to draw the legislative maps and gerrymander and lock in an advantage for the next cycle. And they were very successful at that. And they have had their eye on that same goal for this cycle. And really, the Democrats, I think, have just been playing catch up. And they were not able to catch up, unfortunately, in this election. Now, I know Red Map is short for redistricting. Is there a chance that Democrats are adopting a sort of blue map strategy going forward? Both parties gerrymander when given the opportunity. However, in recent history, the Republicans have been much more aggressive about gerrymandering, and they have been much more explicit that their goal is to win so that they can gerrymander. Democrats have been more hesitant, and there has been a much greater movement in the Democratic Party to come up with a way to solve and prevent gerrymandering so that both parties would be on an even playing field when it comes to winning elections. The Supreme Court ruled last year that racial gerrymandering is unconstitutional, but that partisan gerrymanders aren't reviewable by federal courts. Does this distinction between partisan and racial gerrymanders and whether federal courts can address them change how Republicans will go about drawing maps over this new decade? Absolutely. The court said flatly that even though partisan gerrymanders violate the Constitution, they're simply not something that federal courts can address. That was a 5-4 decision. I think it was misguided, but unfortunately that is now the law. And so you may see much more aggressive partisan gerrymanders this cycle in the places where one party has control of both houses of the state legislature and the governorship as a result of that decision. We also saw in the last 10 years, in 2013, the Supreme Court decided the Shelby County case, which eliminated a big part of the Voting Rights Act that would help prevent gerrymanders. And so that's another protection that won't be available going forward. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy promised GOP victory in the House in 2022 in the next midterm election. 
what avenues do Democrats still have to maintain a House majority at this point? Gerrymandering is just one factor that'll determine who wins control of the, of the House. And it's hard to say exactly how big of a factor it will be. In the last cycle, the 2010 redistricting cycle, the Republicans controlled a lot of state legislatures and they were able to get an advantage in the first three elections of that cycle that allowed them to have an additional 19 members of the House of Representatives over what they would have been likely to win without gerrymandering. We don't know how big that advantage is going to be in this next cycle. It depends on how aggressive the gerrymanders are. It depends on whether or not state courts step in or whether there will be other litigation that is successful at preventing extreme gerrymanders. What we do know is that Republicans control a similar number of states where they have control of the entire legislature and the governorship. And so that means there's definitely going to be an opportunity for them to create gerrymanders that are as, as extreme or even more extreme than the gerrymanders that we've seen before. What can be done over the next decade to mitigate the impacts of or even reverse GOP gerrymandering? Well, to be clear, there are some states where Democrats have control over the state legislatures and over the governorship. There are currently about 14 states where that's true for Democrats. And I expect that in many of those states, we will see Democrats gerrymandering to their benefit. It's simply been the case that Republicans have controlled more state legislatures and have been more willing to enact aggressive gerrymanders. There is, however, a lot we can do. There have been a number of states where we've recently seen reform. One of the highlight states over the last several years has been Michigan, where there was a ballot measure that created a new independent redistricting commission that will draw maps fairly based on a set of criteria that is neutral and is designed to ensure fairness. We could see that in other states. I think we'll need to see a lot of popular mobilization. And we could also see an increase in litigation that tries to get courts to recognize that there are state constitutional rights that prevent partisan gerrymandering, and that even state criteria can be a vehicle to try and get state legislators to draw fairer maps. You know, we've talked about how no matter who's in power, gerrymandering is effective in keeping the party in power in control. If Democrats indeed win back enough state legislatures, particularly in these key states like Texas and North Carolina, to draw new maps, is there a risk that instead of using the new power to strike down gerrymandering, Democrats in those state legislatures simply gerrymander to their own benefit? There's absolutely that risk. And that's why it'd be wise for politicians on a bipartisan basis to come up with a way to fix gerrymandering. We have not seen a lot of movement in that direction on the Republican side, but if they're worried about losing control of some of these states that are starting to lean blue, they have two options. They can be more aggressive about restrictions on democracy to try and prevent majorities from electing Democrats, or they can embrace democracy and ensure that if Democrats do take control, they're not similarly using that control to gain an even bigger advantage. So hopefully we'll see some moves in that direction. But ultimately, the best way to solve this problem would be at the federal level. And as I said, there is a bill that has received wide support on the Democratic side called H.R. 1, the We the People Act, which does contain a comprehensive solution to federal gerrymandering. Do you have any closing thoughts? I would just say that there has been a lot of commentary on whether or not the next redistricting cycle is going to be as severe in terms of gerrymandering as the 2010 cycle was. And unfortunately, I am not optimistic. We see a similar level of trifecta control, controlled by one party of all the instruments of state governments that we saw in 2010. So unless we see a lot of activism and a lot of people opposing gerrymandering, we could see very extreme gerrymanders going forward. Alex Tosanovich is Director of Campaign Finance and Electoral Reform at the Center for American Progress. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. When it comes to U.S. foreign policy, particularly in the Middle East, the defeated Trump regime is treating the incoming Biden administration almost like a foreign adversary, 
rather than like an extension of the U.S. government. Donald Trump has denied President-elect Joe Biden intelligence briefings, and the State Department is withholding incoming messages from foreign governments. Dealings with Iran, the Palestinians, Israel, all present challenges to progressive activists hoping for a reversal of the Trump doctrine, according to Ariel Gold, national co-director of Code Pink, Women for Peace, who has hoped for positive changes from Biden. We have every reason to believe that uh, he will do everything that he can to get us back into the Iran nuclear deal. Now, um, this is not going to be an easy feat, especially as the Trump administration is doing everything they can uh, to make that as difficult as possible, including promising new sanctions on Iran weekly um, until the end of the administration. Now, with regard to the Palestinians, will the incoming Biden administration reset the kind of odious Trump policies, or will he conveniently leave them in place like the moving of the embassy? So uh, I I spoke to some of the things that uh, give me hope in the Biden administration in terms of foreign policy. Um, Palestine and Israel is not one of those things where I think we can um, expect good things or great things from Biden. I, I doubt he will move the embassy back. But to be honest, that's not uh, my first primary. That wouldn't be my first primary concern. I think there are um, more pressing issues on the table. Um, for example, uh, up until the Trump administration, it had always been U.S. policy uh, to oppose uh, settlement growth and to acknowledge that settlements are, in fact, illegal. Now, the Trump administration reversed that. I think that's something that uh, is important to get back to, and I think we can push Biden to do that. Can you explain why is it that Israel, which is a population the size of Virginia, has a land mass about the size of New Jersey, has such an outsized impact on U.S. policy? Well, there's there's many reasons for this. Israel acts as a U.S. outpost very much in the Middle East. Um, It's a a settler colonial state that um, has served this purpose for the U.S. for a long time. And, uh, you know, under the Trump administration, we had the enormous amount of influence from the evangelical uh, contingent. And they're very committed to U.S. support for Israel and to an outsized um, influence of Israel. And, you know, I I won't go for too long into why they're so committed to that, because it's really quite absurd and ridiculous, but it's uh, about bringing about the ends of times and the Armageddon and, and that. But that actually has a lot of influence. There's a lot of money there and a lot of influence in there. We are going to see that influence decline under the Biden administration. And that's a good thing. Um, should we expect to see any type of cutting of military aid or, or conditioning aid coming from Biden? Absolutely not. Now, we have seen real changes in Congress in the past few years in terms of blind support for Israel. And we um, have seen new members elected to the House of Representatives who are outspoken about conditioning military aid to Israel and supporting Palestinian rights. And I think that's where our um, our places to pressure are. When you mention new members elected to Congress who are not uh, sycophants to the APAC lobby, it reminds me of the condemnation against Georgia Senate candidate Reverend Raphael Warnock, who is con dimmed by his opponent uh, as being anti-Israel. Um, is that a fair criticism? So the, the situation with Reverend Warnock is that he traveled in 2019 um, on a pilgrimage uh, led by the National Council of Churches. He traveled to Palestine and Israel to see with his own eyes what was happening on the ground. He went to the uh, refugee camp in, in Bethlehem. He 
met with um, Palestinians. I, I imagine he went to Hebron and saw these very real, unmistakable apartheid right there in front of his eyes. And when he got back, he was part of a, a letter from the um, from those that were on that delegation, and the letter rightfully called um, the militarization of the West Bank, quote, reminiscent of the military o- occupation of Nambia and by apartheid South Africa. And the letter called for an end to weapon sales and proliferation of all sides of the conflict. It was an incredible letter. I was I read through it just recently when these attacks were happening and was incredibly moved by it. Um, uh, what we're seeing, unfortunately, as he's being falsely accused of anti-Semitism by an opponent who herself has made blatant anti-Semitic as well as Islamophobic statements, and as you said, has been endorsed by um, uh, somebody who supports QAnon. Um, unfortunately, Warnock has um, is running afraid from this and has doubled down, saying that he supports um, Israel unequivocally and that he would never condition aid. And I'm so disappointed to see him do this, not only because um, it undermines our work for Palestinian rights and takes us backward, but I think it's a real losing strategy for him. We've seen um, in such uh, elections as um, Jamal Bowman ousting hawk, Israel hawk Elliot Engel, that it is no, that APEC no longer has a stranglehold on Congress. And that um, there are many progressives out there who support uh, members of Congress calling for Palestinian rights. And uh, backing away from this position, from a real principled position and a very reasonable position, anybody who has traveled to the West Bank, who has seen the checkpoints, who has seen uh, the roads and walkways, one side for Jews and the other for Palestinians, knows this is apartheid. It is not a stretch to call um, it apartheid, and he should not be afraid to do so and should not be getting into a defensive position with his anti-Semitic, um, pro-Israel opponent. Isn't that exactly what is intended by the APAC lobby? Absolutely, and that's the stranglehold that APAC used to have. APAC used to be able to uh, put fear in members of Congress or candidates for Congress, and they would capitulate, and if they didn't, they really paid a price. APAC would fund their opponents, APAC would smear them, and they often lost their election campaigns. But that's no longer the case. We saw that um, with the election of Ilhan Omar. We saw that with the election of AOC and AOC's popularity with Ayanna Presley, who initially was uh, towed the line a bit on Israel, um, at one point voting for an anti-BDS legislation, but then later heard from her constituents and uh, came out for conditioning military aid for saying that no U.S. military assistance should support annexation activities. And we just saw that in the incredible election of Jamal Bowman, who ousted the Elliot Engel, a, a big Israel hawk, and a big deal in Congress. So there is no reason... Um, really for Warnock to think that he can't stand by his principles. And I I don't think it's helpful in elections to, um, at this point, to continue that APAC, uh, to continue to be afraid of APAC that way. I don't think they have that power anymore. And that's thanks to the incredible work of activists and how hard we've worked to uh, turn the tides on blind support for Israel. Ariel Gold, thank you for your work, and thanks for talking with us about the incoming Biden administration foreign policy. Thanks so much for having me on. Watching election night results trickle in was torture for many. Trump led in several states Biden had been predicted to win, as Republican-leaning in-person ballots were counted first. 
Even after mail-in ballots pushed Biden over the top in key states, many election watchers were left with a bad taste in their mouths. Margins of victory were often closer than polls predicted, and an improbable Trump win seemed likely on the evening of November 3rd. So, did pre-election opinion polling fail to prepare us for this election? Reporter Chris Banger-Drowns has more. Polling this year, like in 2016, was fairly accurate. The winner of both the popular vote and the Electoral College was predicted correctly, an improvement over the last cycle. There were some sizable polling errors in certain states, but the perception that polling failed this year is largely just that, a perception of an unpredicted outcome in an election year like none other. Because of the way that we counted ballots and because of the way that the politics of counting ballots played out in this election campaign with so many absentee ballots cast, with that method being preferred by Democrats by such a large margin, we were always going to end up with the narrative that it looked like on election night that Donald Trump was performing better than it looked like he was performing in pre-election polls. And so it makes me wonder with this counterfactual, what would have happened if we could have counted all the votes on election night? Would we be talking about polling in the same way that we are now? That's Joshua Dick, associate professor of political science and director of the Center for Public Opinion at UMass Lowell. He says that, like in 2016, polling errors were relegated to a handful of states. And like in 2016, pollsters had difficulty accurately sampling Republican voters in some Midwestern states like Wisconsin, Ohio, and Iowa. There's a worry, I think, that there is something that's happening there that's leading to the undercounting of Republican support in those states. And so the interesting thing is, is that if you asked me, if you put me on the spot about it now, I might say that the reasons for that might be fundamentally different than they were in 2016. But I think people want an easy explanation for that and want to point to those things. Joshua says this difficulty counting the GOP vote could be due to different kinds of GOP voters responding differently to polls. A certain group of Republican voters is highly distrustful of institutions, especially media and academic organizations, and are thus less likely to respond to polls. But non-response rates from this group alone can't explain polling errors. Joshua thinks varying attitudes towards the coronavirus pandemic changed which kinds of voters responded to polls. In short, scientifically literate Republicans stayed indoors and were simply more likely to pick up a pollster's phone call. So if there's a difference between, say, uh, pandemic-aware versus, say, COVID-truther Republicans, if there's a split in Republican population, that could manifest in the type of Republican that you're getting in a sample. And that could also vary from state to state. If you have a state that is having you know, a COVID outbreak or has had uh, significant political disputes over COVID, Wisconsin is actually one of these states, right, where COVID has been a battle between the legislature and the courts and the governor. And it has become a political hotbed. And so if there are some people who are going on and living their lives like the pandemic never happened and other people who are staying home all the time, We could actually see that manifest in the way that people alter their behavior and increase their propensity to answer surveys. Significant polling errors in Texas and Florida had less to do with anti-institution or anti-science Republicans and more to do with the failure to track a shift of Latinx voters to Trump since 2016. But there's another problem that rises above the demographic idiosyncrasies of any particular state. This is the problem of the likely voter. Election polls often stake their credibility on the process they use to determine which of their poll respondents are likely to vote. And that process is difficult. It varies from pollster to pollster. And there's a surprising lack of transparency with how pollsters talk about who is and is not a likely voter. And this is something I would actually really like to see change. There needs to be a robust debate within the polling community, and it ought to be done very transparently about likely voter models, about how we determine who likely voters are and who they aren't, 
and it should be done in a way that we help to define what best practices are because the rest of polling really kind of relies on this notion of collective wisdom moving towards best practices. It's happened with waiting, it's happened with all other parts of the polling process, and then it often feels like likely voter modeling is kind of the secret sauce that every pollster kind of shakes into their model. And it should not be. Um, it absolutely should not be. And it is a source that can lead to substantial variation from pollster to pollster. So the polling world does have some work ahead of them. Better capturing the white anti-institutional vote in the Midwest and the swing Latinx votes in the South. Creating transparent and consistent processes to determine likely voters. And boosting response rates overall. But there was not large-scale failure this year, merely the perception of one because of the way we counted our votes. This is going to be like a four to five point victory in the popular vote. So had we been able to count all of the votes by, say, midnight or 1 a.m. East Coast time on election night, and we would have had a clear picture of the popular vote and a clear picture of the Electoral College, and we were showing that Joe Biden was winning by four and a half or five percent in the popular vote and had won over 300 electoral votes, and that determination had been made on election night, the narrative about this campaign would be very different. This narrative war raged since the first polls closed on election night, with Trump and his sycophants casting doubt on election results, Democrats urging respect for the vote-counting process, and Joshua Dick hoping cooler heads prevail. You know, immediately, you know, before we even had final results, I was fielding emails. They hadn't even counted the absentee ballots. Why were all the polls so wrong? And largely my response was, you know, well, maybe they were off by a bit, but wait, wait until they're counted. Joshua Dick is associate professor of political science and director of the Center for Public Opinion at UMass Lowell. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Banger-Drowns. Voter turnout reached record numbers this year. As different communities came out to vote, there was one specific population that many analysts overlooked. Still, First Nations people had a significant influence on the results of the 2020 presidential election. Amara Evering has that story. This year's presidential election has shown us that the U.S. can't simply be reduced to just blue and red states. Though many were surprised at the results in places like Arizona and Georgia, there were over 3.5 million voters that may have seen it coming. Those 3.5 million are America's first citizens, Native Americans who despite systematic voter suppression and the devastating impact of COVID-19, weighed in on our democracy in unprecedented numbers. And this voter turnout was the result of years of work and research, some of which was done by O.J. Siemens, co-executive director of the Native American Voting Rights Organization, Four Directions, and member of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe in South Dakota. To better understand the impact of Native American votes, his organization did a state-by-state -state analysis of the 2016 election. We found that Arizona, Nevada, Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Colorado. There are seven states where we identified the Native American voting population either equaled the number of votes that the candidate won by or exceeded it. And that kind of impact could be even bigger, if not for systematic barriers to voting. In conventionally red states like Arizona, Alaska, or Oklahoma, Native Americans can make up to 17% of the total eligible voting population but there are clear disparities in access to voting for Native communities. Living in Arizona, Navajo Nation, a white person living in Scottsdale has 25 days to figure out his ballot and vote. Whereas if you're Navajo, you have two-thirds less that time. you got a hundred times further to travel. And then when you get the ballot, most of the people in the Navajo Nation, their first language is their traditional language. So then you got to find a translator. It's just so unfair. Because of limited polling locations, some must travel up to 140 miles just to cast their vote. And even after this long trip, issues may arise concerning their IDs. 
Those who live on reservations often don't have a standard street address, which may pose an issue for those who live in states that have laws requiring an ID card with a standard residential address on it in order to vote. Perfect example would be North Dakota prior to 2018. They created a law that said you need to have a physical address on your ID, knowing that for the past 30 years, they collected hundreds, if not millions of dollars to work with tribes to develop physical addresses. And knowing that they received the money, but they never developed the physical addresses, it was really telling a situation when they required it because they knew they didn't do it. And you're going to see that all over the United States and Indian country where the states and the counties received tons of money to develop physical addresses and they never did it. But this is only one of many barriers to voting, especially as COVID-19 continues to devastate Native communities at alarming rates. In Arizona, the Navajo Nation alone has seen more than 12,000 cases and almost 600 deaths. Because this virus is especially dangerous to elders, it also poses a threat to the maintenance of culture and tradition. As an emergency response to this, Navajo Nation member Ali Young created the grassroots initiative Protect the Sacred, which calls on Native youth to protect their elders, their language, and their culture as COVID continues to spread. And even during the election, her organization brought Navajo voters to the polls on horseback, to honor their ancestors and encourage young people to get out and vote. Initiatives like hers got people to the polls in record numbers. I'm very proud of the natives that showed up throughout the United States in record numbers during a pandemic. And basically what they were willing to do is risk their life for this democracy, to risk their life to change the course of this country. In Arizona alone, tribes like the Navajo Nation, the Hopi, and the White Mountain Apache, only to name a few, created an influential base of support for Biden leading to his subsequent victory. Tribes like the Tohono O'odham Nation, whose sacred burial ground was desecrated and blown up by the Trump administration to make way for a border wall, had deeply personal reasons for coming out to vote. And as people came out, some red states were becoming spotted with blue. If you look at the states during this election, all you have to look for is a blue spot in the middle of red and you would see Native Americans and that's where the reservations were. And I really want to make it clear, though, Natives voted for President Biden because of his messaging and in Vice President Harris. But it was never really a political party thing for us. I mean, President Trump was insulting towards Native Americans. And so the natives, as we predicted in what we called our analysis was seven generations, again, a cultural thing, seven states and 77 electoral votes in 2020. If you look at how the vote came out, we were right on the money in all seven states. And in some states, the turnout of Native American voters significantly influenced elections, Siemens explained to me the reason why it was so important for organizations like his to get people to the polls. One of the reasons why we are really intent on getting natives to vote is to get them to the table or put us at the table instead of having us for dinner. And this means more native representation in politics, as well as politicians that respect the rights, resources and treaties of native communities. Read the treaties, understand the treaties, and honor them. I think we would have a very good life moving forward. I know we wouldn't have such bad economic development. There are so many things that could happen if they honor our treaties the way they're supposed to that would actually lift us up. And it's not a handout. It's something that we've already paid for. My wife says that Native Americans have operated a social welfare program for the United States for hundreds of years between our land, our resources, and people serving in the military. We've dedicated basically our lives and future generations to ensure this country is safe. And we want to make sure that these politicians that are elected pay attention to what we have. And organizations like Siemens will continue this work of advocacy beyond what just happened just a couple weeks ago. We have another race that is going to happen in January in Georgia. And guess what? There's Indians in Georgia. Guess where we're going? <laughs> and, you know, this can control the Senate. 
We have already sent out communications, trying to set up meetings with tribal leaders and start looking at setting up an operation to help with getting out the vote in Georgia. We want to make sure that we have plenty of natives that are registered to vote and that will participate. But even as Siemens and others work tirelessly to build up the power of Native American voters, he says some are still slow to recognize their immense influence in our elections. I don't know if you saw the CNN deal where they had the percentage of whites vote, the percentage that black vote, Latinos vote, the percentage that Asian votes, and then they had something else. That's another thing that we're battling is these major networks, even after all we've done is labeling us as anything besides Native Americans, and in this case, labeling us as something else in America. Your first citizens are now something else. All the hard work was basically done by something else. No. <laughs> I mean, it's insulting, but we've been here for hundreds of years. We know that humor is actually one of the things that saved us. O.J. Siemens, member of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe and co-executive director of Four Directions. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Amara Evering. The 117th Congress to be sworn in come January 3rd represents some important firsts in terms of diversity. New York Democrats Mondaire Jones and Richie Torres will be the first openly gay black men to be sworn in. And New Mexico is now the first state to elect all non-white women to the House. Surely causes to celebrate. But looking past those who are elected to Congress, to those who are hired to support them, there is still a great deal of work to do. Sue Goodwin has more. This is a story that, in part, is about how an internship turned into a dissertation, which turned into a career focus. James R. Jones is an assistant professor of African American Studies and Sociology at Rutgers University, Newark. As an undergraduate at George Washington University, he interned with two members of Congress back in 2006 and 2009, and in more ways than one, it was an eye-opening experience. What my internship experience really revealed to me was the critical role that congressional staff play and really propelling the legislative agenda. And the other thing that stuck out was not only that congressional staff were really influential political actors, but that they were majority white. As a graduate student in sociology at Columbia University, Jones pursued the topic of racial inequality in the congressional workplace for his Ph.D. dissertation. He focused on the Senate, and his research found that in 2015, although people of color make up over one-third of the national population, they accounted for only 7% of top staffers. And so what my research has come to sort of document is how people of color are missing from the most senior positions. So we think about those as the chiefs of staff of lawmakers, their communications directors, their legislative directors, staff directors of committees, how those are mainly filled by white staffers. Jones's findings were published in a report by the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies, and since then he has continued his work on the issue. Last month, he wrote an op-ed for the Star-Ledger titled, It's Time to Hold Congress Accountable for Its Own Racism. He writes that not much has changed since 2015, citing a 2018 study by the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies that found people of color account for only 14% of top House staffers. It's a slight increase, but definitely not enough in a larger context to the population of people of color and the national population. Part of Jones's research focus is to understand what these kind of staff inequalities mean for public policy. And to do that, it's important to understand the role of congressional staffers in the legislative process. Jones says congressional staffers are the invisible force in American policymaking. So these are the people who are helping generate ideas, develop policy, and negotiate policy. These are people who are talking with constituents and other democracy stakeholders. These are the people who are managing how Congress operates as an institution. There are some pretty negative consequences when we have this sort of group that's so intimately involved in policymaking, and they do not look like the rest of the American population. 
As Congress continues to be a white-dominated workplace from top to bottom, it normalizes whiteness, says Jones. So consider what that means in the midst of a pandemic that is having an overwhelming, disparate, and devastating impact on communities of color. And as Congress is developing the appropriate response, it's necessary to have different people who are members of different communities in the room as they're talking about what is the right policy, right? Helps us to come to the best decisions, helps us reach the best policy if we can have more perspectives in the room. And if that's not necessarily members of Congress themselves, it needs to be staffers who are going to develop these policies, which are would be quite substantive. Part of the problem here is how civil rights law applies to Congress. In 1964, Congress passed the Civil Rights Act, which barred discrimination in the workplace based on race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. However, Congress exempted itself, arguing that compliance would violate the separation of powers. That's why in 1978, freshman senator from Ohio John Glenn described Congress as the last plantation. And the name has stuck. In fact, that's the name of Jones's forthcoming book. Jones says the Corporate Accountability Act in 1995 closed some of the gaps, but it didn't go far enough. What's still in place is an exemption that allows Congress to avoid reporting the racial and gender demographics of their staffs. In any other workplace, part of the onboarding process for any new employee is, you know, to fill out some demographic information your race and ethnicity and your gender. And this information gets sent to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. But this doesn't apply to Congress. So there really isn't any data about who Congress employs. As Jones writes in his recent op-ed, the absence of these data for Congress makes it unaccountable and represents a key way through which inequality is maintained on Capitol Hill. Jones notes that Senate Democrats have released some demographic data, which shows that in a handful of offices, the majority of staffers are people of color. While eye-opening, Jones says this data remains insufficient. And so one example is looking at the racial demographics of Senator Kamala Harris and um, Senator Dianne Feinstein, who both represent California, a very diverse state. And They are quite different offices, right? Kamala Harris has a really diverse office, one of the most diverse offices amongst Democratic lawmakers outside of Cory Booker. And Dianne Feinstein's office for the same state is incredibly white. So this data in itself is quite telling. But I think a lot of lawmakers have used sort of paint an overly optimistic of how racially diverse their offices are. So one of the problems of how they currently report data, and this goes for the House as well, they're only sort of presenting this aggregate data. They're not discerning between people who work in D.C. and people who work in their districts. They're not saying what positions they work. So it could be that Congress is pretty diverse, but all the diversity is rather stratified. So whites work on the top and people of color work on the bottom. So right there's this sort of racial hierarchy. So what about the Biden administration? As the president-elect prepares to take office in January, nearly half of the transition team is made up of people of color, and women are in the majority. But James Jones says we still have to keep a watchful eye on where these jobs are positioned in the hierarchy and what are they positioned to do. Are they only positioned in racialized roles? In many ways, Biden was very guilty of this in his campaign and certain points where you had a lot of people of color on the campaign, but they were, let's say, for African-American outreach or Latino outreach versus being in a much more mainstream role. So I think that's the thing we should be looking for. Not only the percentage of people of color, how they're appointed to different positions, what types of positions they're appointed to, are they senior roles? and which they was going to have like direct access to the president and to the extent to which, you know, they're not pigeonholed to only talk about racial issues. I think that's the things we should be looking for. I, I would say there is certainly optimism in that front that there will be diverse cabinet. Um, how it unfold, I'm unsure, but I think I would caution us against this is an all but guarantee. James R. Jones is an assistant professor of African-American studies and sociology at Rutgers University, Newark, 
and author of the forthcoming book, The Last Plantation. You can read more about his research on congressional staffing at blackcapital.com. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. California this year was home to the most expensive ballot initiative campaign in U.S. history. $200 million in funding from companies like Uber and Lyft convinced Californians to approve Proposition 22, a law rolling back employment gains won by rideshare drivers. What does this mean for the gig economy and for grassroots democracy? Reporter Chris Banker-Drowns as an answer. A little over a year ago, California signed Assembly Bill 5 into law. AB 5 ensured that workers in the gig economy, including Uber and Lyft drivers, receive the full benefits of employment like minimum wages, unemployment insurance, and importantly, the right to form a labor union. But the passage of Prop 22 this month represents an end to the promise of AB 5. Tyler Sandness is a driver and organizer with Rideshare Drivers United, which helped win AB5 last year and fought hard against Prop 22 this year. Sandness describes where exactly the $200 million in pro-Prop 22 funding was directed. People wouldn't be able to turn on their televisions without seeing like at least five yes on Prop 22 ads. They couldn't open their mailboxes without seeing flyers saying, support drivers, vote yes on Prop 22. You couldn't even start an episode on Hulu or even a YouTube video without seeing it. You couldn't Google Prop 22 without the first result being vote yes on Prop 22. So a lot of their money went towards advertising. Some of that money went to offset the fact that they were using their own app to basically shout propaganda at both their drivers and their customers. You couldn't open an app as a customer without seeing, vote yes on Prop 22 or else your ride's going to get more expensive. You couldn't be a driver without seeing, are you going to vote yes on Prop 22? Click here. So just they became ubiquitous throughout the whole state in the months leading up to the election. In an expensive media market, it's very hard to compete with that. The unions here in California did a valiant effort. I think they raised about $20 million for this campaign, which on any other year against any other ballot initiative would be a pretty good amount of money to spend on advertising. And and the messaging was very much a, this is what's driving income inequality, is these kind of business deals, that drivers don't support Prop 22. Some drivers do want to have the security that comes with employment status and a road to organize. And um, obviously, though, if you're being spent 10 to 1, your message is not going to get out there as much as Lyft and Uber did. And in the end, one of the flaws with California's proposition system is that it's a pay-to-play system. The more money you have, the more likely you're going to get your ballot passed. So right now, it seems to favor big corporations more than it favors grassroots organizing. Last time you were on the program was in June when we talked about this app set up by Rideshare Drivers United that was meant to calculate back wages, expenses, and damages owed by the company to drivers as well as the state of California. And when we last talked, that number was at $1 billion, absolutely (laughs) massive, just in the state of California. And it seems, you know, if, if these companies are facing down a $1 billion barrel what wouldn't they do to prevent proper classification of their workers? In other words, is spending $200 million really a surprise here? No, no, it's not. Though, thankfully, Prop 22 was not a retroactive law. So it does not go back in time and says that everything before Prop 22 is independent contractor status. We got the state labor commissioner to sue on behalf of all the drivers in the whole state. So now their lawsuit is not just about the misclassification of the 5,000 drivers we helped with that app to get. That lawsuit is now expanded to cover the whole state workforce in how they've been misclassified, um, which is really exciting. And we're really thankful that Prop 22 hasn't stopped the legal path for that to move forward. It's the one little silver lining in the rest of this. They were rewarded instantly for their $200 million investment. Like the day after Prop 22 passed, they announced that between Lyft and Uber, they had gained over $13 billion in market value. 
So they made their money back hundreds and hundreds of times over for what they invested in this campaign, and they were rewarded from their investors for doing so. California is an incredibly important market for them. It's their headquarters market. Where California goes, so does the rest of the country. And so it was really important for them to win here. And they they know that for the survival of their particular business model, they need Prop 22 to pass. And they would have done anything to, to see it passed. Before we get to you know political solutions to this problem, I'm wondering what are the human consequences of this yes vote on Prop 22 So yeah, this is going to hurt drivers in the long run. They are being guaranteed a minimum wage that is sub-minimal. So it means that it's going to be below the $15 minimum wage here in California. Some drivers will get medical benefits, but most will not. And there is definitely skepticism about how they're going to roll out that program and how many drivers are going to be able to benefit from it. I think the one thing that it does hurt drivers the most, and and specifically RDU, is that it really does shut down the door for us being able to create a driver's union. So many of these issues in rideshare come from the simple fact that drivers can't negotiate their contracts. No individual driver negotiates anything with the company. The company basically gives you an ultimatum of, here are the terms. If you don't like it, you don't have to work for us. And without the ability to be employees and have that path to formally unionize under the National Labor Relations Board means that that desire to have a fair contract that's negotiated on fair and equal terms, that's been deferred here in California for the time being. What are the next steps for RDU and other gig worker organizations? Can Prop 22 be challenged in the courts or legislatively? I I know you said that bargaining for a contract is no longer an option, at least under Prop 22. So there are definitely a couple of strategies that we're investigating right now. There are some concerns about legal strategies. There are some parts of Prop 22 that seem pretty shaky and that we're discussing with lawyers about what would be the best tactic to kind of pull a lawsuit in which we'd be part of a coalition doing that. In terms of the legislature overturning it, one of the more insidious parts of Prop 22 is that it has a seven-eighths vote requirement in the state legislature to make any amendments to it, which is an impossible barrier. Just to give it context, one of the most hated laws in California is Prop 13. Prop 13 only required a three-fourths vote in order to make any kind of amendments to it. So this is an unreasonably high bar that has now been set that basically is locking the legislature out of the fight entirely. So the challenges are going to have to come probably through the courts. Um, The other strategy is pushing for federal policy. We know that Bernie Sanders had recommended the PRO Act last year that does have a more expansive vision of what employment is and would cover gig economy workers as employees. If that passed at the federal level, that would supersede Prop 22 here in California. So we're definitely looking at partners throughout the country and definitely supporting and backing efforts like the PRO Act and having a more expansive notion of employment and and what responsibility employers really have to the people that make them their money. Do you have any closing thoughts? I think that this has definitely been a painful lesson of how flawed California's proposition system is. It was originally designed for grassroots organizing, direct democracy, and it's really morphed into a pay-to-play system in which the big ballot initiatives that do get passed are the ones that are backed by big companies. And so it really is, instead of it becoming a direct democracy of the people, it's become a way to buy laws. And that's essentially what Lyft and Uber did here. They cut themselves out of the law for a chump change of $200 million that they were then immediately reimbursed for. And when you have a system like that, how is it fair to any grassroots organizing to be able to confront that? How are you supposed to even the playing field and have that be a real discussion of ideas when one side can blast their ideas a hundred times in an hour where one side can only afford to have media blitzes three weeks before the election? So it's it's definitely hurts. But um, this is the fight of the future of work. We're not going anywhere. We encourage everybody who's fighting for employment rights, fighting for the right to unionize, fighting for fair contracts to keep up the fight. Because if we stop fighting, then Lyft and Uber win by default. And they definitely don't have their drivers or the public's best interests at heart. Tyler Sandness, driver and organizer with Rideshare Drivers United. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert Drowns.
was a devastating decision and an enormous failure of leadership in modern times. In May 1985, out-of-control Philadelphia police dropped a bomb on the house occupied by members of the African-American Back to Nature Collective MOVE, then sought to prevent innocent victims from escaping the burning building. In all, 11 people, including women and children, died. An entire city block was destroyed. Finally, last week, more than 35 years later, the Philadelphia City Council approved a resolution formally apologizing for the unconscionable act. Now, going forward, every May 13th, the anniversary of that awful day, will be formally remembered. The measure was sponsored by Councilwoman Jamie Gautier, who grew up near the West Philly neighborhood where the bombing took place. Back in May, 11 of my council colleagues and I released a joint apology on the 35th anniversary of the MOVE bombing. And today I introduced a resolution that would serve as a formal apology on behalf of city council for this tragic event. The resolution would also establish May 13th as an annual day of observation, reflection and recommitment in Philadelphia to honor those we lost that day in 1985. I thank the 10 council members who co-sponsored this resolution. I initially planned to speak on this once the resolution came up for a final vote. But given everything that's happened over the last couple of days, and even today during session, I feel compelled to share some thoughts. On May 13, 1985, the city of Philadelphia carried out a brutal attack on its own citizens. As part of an effort to forcefully evict MOVE, city officials made the unconscionable decision to drop a bomb on their home in Cobbs Creek. This is among the only times in our nation's history that a police force has bombed its own people. That explosion caused a fire, which authorities allowed to burn. They didn't call in firefighters until nearly an hour later. By that time, it was already out of control. 11 people, five children and six adults lost their lives in the move house. And as a result, the fire, as a result of the fire, two surrounding city blocks were burned to the ground, destroying 61 homes and leaving 250 Philadelphians homeless. To this day, not a single person has faced criminal consequences or been held accountable in any meaningful way for these brutal acts. We can draw a straight line from the unresolved pain and trauma of that day to Walter Wallace Jr.'s killing earlier this week in the very same neighborhood. Because what's lying under the surface here is a lack of recognition for the humanity of black people from law enforcement. In that way, the lack of reconciliation between the police and our communities from the move bombing is still having repercussions 35 years later. Let's talk about what reconciliation would mean in practice because it's a word that gets used a lot, but we don't often take the time to actually talk about what it calls for. It would mean we're picking different people to be police. They would have different skill sets and attitudes and they would engage differently in our neighborhoods and with our young people. One very brief example. At a march hosted by black clergy on Tuesday protesting Walter Wallace's death, I saw multiple officers wearing masks with the Blue Lives Matter flag. They wouldn't be doing that in our neighborhoods during this time if they had respect for our lives. Their presence in our communities would feel different. White communities tend to like police and feel they're there to keep them safe. Black people overall don't have the same experience. They are often fearful of police. And frankly, like we saw with the officers who killed Walter Wallace, sometimes they seem scared of us too. If we had gone through the hard work of reconciliation after the move bombing, maybe those officers would have seen in Walter Wallace someone in need of a helping hand instead of a threat. They would have seen him and realized he was someone's son, father, husband, neighbor. The May 13th day of reconciliation that we're proposing with this resolution is a symbol we hope can lead to the actual work, the conversations, the relationship building, and the listening that should have been happening in Philly and across the country for decades, but never has. 
And the formal apology we're issuing through this resolution serves as recognition for the pain and the trauma that these events have brought upon the Cobbs Creek community, Black people, and our city as a whole. So let us make this a part of our living responsibility to those who have died at the hands of the state. Let May 13th be a day of penitence and commitment to working towards racial justice. And let us achieve justice for Walter Wallace Jr. and for all of the undeserving black men and women before him who have died prematurely at the hands of police. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Monday Morning QB is produced by Chris Banger-Drowns, Amara Evering, and Sue Goodwin. I'm Askia Muhammad. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash WPFWMMQB. Please stay safe, keep your social distance, mask up, and thank you for listening to WPFW Washington and WBAI New York. Thank you.